We acknowledge that we live and work on the traditional lands of the Gunai Kurnai Nation and that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that we benefit from the colonial structures and policies that remain in place today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people and recognise their ongoing struggles in dismantling those structures. During the First World War, strikes caused fuel shortages so severe that the Victorian government reopened the old brown coal mine near Morwell in the Latrobe Valley. And the state government has outlined a long-term plan to ensure the Latrobe Valley remains viable as its economy moves away from coal-fired energy. It's been the lifeblood of the Latrobe Valley for decades, but continual change in the power industry and the introduction of the carbon tax means it's time for a plan B. It's a month tomorrow since fire entered the Hazelwood coal mine in Victoria's east. Fire has been burning for weeks now, blanketing the township in a toxic smoke. The housing estates are literally just 50 metres away, so when the wind blows in the other direction, they take all of that in. The guillotine has finally come down on Australia's dirtiest power station, Hazelwood. It's caused jitters about electricity prices and raised questions about Australia's readiness for a low carbon future. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. The Latrobe Valley's coal mines could be filled with water and made into a tourist attraction to rival Italy's Lake Como. This is Coalface. Hi, I'm Josie Hess and I use they, them pronouns. Hi, I'm Stephanie Sabrinskis and I use she, her pronouns. What are we learning about this week, Josie? All right, so um, I'm just going to preface this by saying this is a little bit delayed because I had a little bit of COVID, actually quite a lot of COVID. Yes, and how was your COVID experience? It's shit, right? Um, a bit shit, yeah, not great. Wouldn't recommend one star, I would say. One star? Yeah. Do you reckon people should still be wearing masks and stuff? I do a bit, yeah. Having yeah. just gone through that, I think it's kind of nuts that we're like, Meh. Fine, everything's yeah, fine. fine. Maybe that's a very human thing um, to just be like, it's very fine. And that actually kind of ties into some of the themes of today's episode, which I think I had to very consciously avoid talking to you for about two weeks because I really wanted to tell you about this. I and I, we've just been like skirting around it. I've been dying to hear um, what you've learned because I want to know what cooperative energy look, could look like. And yeah, it, it's tough. Like even even just having done any research on one of our topics and then ha um, not having to talk to you about it until we're in the moment of I the recording. Know. I hope you all appreciate the sacrifice that I've been through in not talking to Steph about this because I really wanted to. So let me set the scene for you, all right? I haven't been a journalist in the outside world for like two years. I've been doing Zoom journalism. I've been doing like you know, um, phone calls, but I haven't stepped outside this fucking cave for like two years. So a couple weeks ago, I actually got to set foot inside a factory. Have you been to a factory, Steph? Oh my God. I don't think I've been to a factory. What is your like visual of like factory? Like, what does that mean to you? Okay. So <laughs> the thing that's come into my mind immediately is that, um, Australian movie Peaches, um, I think it's called Peaches, where I, I, I think Hugo Weaving's in it. That's the only that actor about right. yeah. I can identify. But um, this girl works in a peach canning factory. So I think of a cannery right. with like the, uh, what are those movie things? The production line. Yeah, a production line. A conveyor belt. That's the one. A conveyor belt moving down with people with hair nets on and like outfits to protect their clothing. And there's like a can moving down and then something squirts 
peaches into the can and it moves on. Yeah. So that's what I think of with the factory and also a forklift. There's got to be There's a forklift be driver. Forklift. So what is the factory like? Okay, so I spent a couple hours down at the Earthworker Co-op in Morwell. It's put together by an incredible team of what I asked them what they like to be called. Um, they like to be called workers. So when I say that, it's like their term for themselves, but they're kind of like, so they're not employees, but they're workers. And this week I talked to Dan Musil. He's an activist and he's a key part of the Earthworker Energy Manufacturing Co-op. He's working on his PhD in economic change and justice. And just to make sure we all know how wonderful he is, I just want to point out that he's also a talented musician and he plays football for our local sports ball team. Let me tell you all about when I went to visit Dan at the factory. So I drive down there. It's sort of in the um, back uh, section of Morewell down near the pin bowling area. Oh, so down there, like the industrial, the industrial est- area. Yeah. It's yeah. in the industrial estate. You kind of go past some like tractor shops. You go past like a lot of dead grass. And like, I think as I was driving down there, I was like this, I thought it was more sort of dead, but then you kind of turn the corner and there's all these like businesses like thriving in there. I'm honestly drawing a blank for if I've ever been to an actual factory. I think I went to the age building in Melbourne <laughs> and they were printing the newspaper. So I guess that was That's the newspaper factory. factory. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But this shit is happening, you know, across the world. However, the point of difference here is that this is a co-op and we'll get into the weeds of like what that specifically means. But the exciting thing is it's happening in Morwell. Woo-hoo! So do you know anything about like this Earthworker Co-op in Morwell? So um, I know that the Earthworker Cooperative has been around for a while and that they have different kinds of, uh, I guess, factories operating co-ops. around the place. Co-ops yep. around the place. And yeah, I know that they're, they, like you say, they're all workers. They're all, it's like you buy into the business by becoming a worker there and you have a say in the operations of it. And that's probably about it. That's pretty, that's pretty spot on. So I went in kind of knowing um, zero. I did a bit of research before I went in terms of like about Dan and stuff, but then the actual function of the cop, that's what I really wanted to understand because I'm like, okay, I like to think like, oh, these are visions of how things could operate, but like specifically how on a day-to-day basis does this work? So we totally get into that. Did tell me though a little bit about the fact that Earthworkers is this like community-led initiative that's part of the transition towards new ways of living. So like baked into the sort of premise of this movement or like um, group of people is this very future led ideology I suppose and that I think is really interesting when we're thinking about the valley because as we've talked about you know we've got this wicked problem we've got a bunch of you know pretty substantial hurdles to overcome but here is somebody or a group of people doing something actually different on the ground that offers at least one solution to how this can be different so I'll let Dan introduce himself but I guess like the preface to this is that this is the question about like one interesting fact about himself and this is what he had to say my name's Dan. I am one of the worker members here at the Earthworker Energy Manufacturing Co-op. An interesting fact. I love wheat picks. <laughs> um, that is interesting. <laughs> yeah. What I like about them is that they're a cheap and relatively healthy way to get full and power up a day in the morning. And I think I've had them pretty much every day of my life, so it's just routine as well. So yeah. The man loves wheat bix <laughs> That's amazing. Was it breakfast time when you no, went to do the no, interview? No, it was the afternoon. No. Right, yeah. I love that. I was like, is there wheat bix on the site right now? And there was cereal. So <laughs> I was like, that's good to know. That I mean, that must be like the kind of food that powers a, a workforce. Yeah. So the next place we kind of went, and what I noticed a lot in the coverage of Dan himself, and the reason that we're speaking to Dan is because he's so central to sort of like having this all happen in Morwell, but also he's really articulate about, you know, just the role of the worker, I guess, and shaping their own destiny and future. And when I was researching Dan, the main thing I noticed was the real disparate 
fields. Like the man does a lot of different stuff. So I asked him how all of those fields sort of intersect and what does that mean to him? So that's what he's going to talk about next. I think everything's connected. That's actually, I think, a key part of what Earthwork is all about is recognizing interconnection. Yeah, I find the world infinitely interesting and I'm lucky enough, I've been really privileged to be able to explore different interests. I love playing music because I think it's, um, for me, it's, it's a wonderfully exciting, nourishing experience. And also I think it's a really powerful vehicle for human connection and communication. So I think there's really obvious ways for me in, in how music relates to, you know, changing the world and politics and the stuff that I'm involved with with Earthworker. I've been lucky enough to, to do, to go to uni and do a bunch of study. And yeah, I'm, I'm, at the moment I'm trying to finish a very overdue PhD thesis looking at economic transformation and the role that projects like Earthworker might play in making our worlds more sustainable and democratic and fair. I took on the PhD not not because I'm interested in any kind of paperwork or um, because I'd, I'd want to become an academic or anything, but because it was a way, it was a means for me. I was lucky to get a scholarship, so it was a means for me to explore these questions and, frankly, to fund lots of the work I've been doing with Earthworker, um, getting this factory up and going. So to me, yeah, that's, that's connected to this as well. And, f- yeah, I've been lucky enough to... I grew up playing team sports and I think... Sp- Team sports at their best are also like a wonderful vehicle for human connection and I feel like I've learned so much in terms of communication and teamwork and cooperation through playing team sports. I recognise they're not that, that's not everyone's experience, but when at their best, sports are, can be wonderful for that. And I'm lucky enough, yeah, I've still still got a tiny bit more running my legs, so I'm still playing footy out here in Mobile. Kind of tikes. Um, <laughs> Did you say Khan? Kind of tikes. <laughs> that's the reason Mobile's going on <laughs> So yeah, I guess footy, footy. They're, how are they all connected? They're all connected because, to me, they're all, they all foster human connection and 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 they're all different ways of experiencing and exploring the world. Dan is a multi-talented person. He's actually not from Morwell, though he does have connections to the area. And so I was really curious, like, it doesn't really strike me, I don't know about you, as a place that people necessarily choose to come a lot of the time. That's not always the case, but like, you know, it's not people's number one destination necessarily for like a sea change or whatever. So I was like, what? Like, why Morwell? And this is what, this is the story of how Dan comes to Morwell. Gippsland's always been a second home. My mum grew up in Warrigal and me and my siblings spent every school holiday in Warrigal at my grandparents' house with cousins and, and Fran and Pa. And we still have our, our Christmas there. I remember coming out to the valley a few times to go to Powerworks, you know, do the stuff that come to Mid-Valley, do the stuff that people came to more for back in the day. For me, like a deeper engagement in questions of environment and justice that eventually led me to be here when I, I went to uni and in Melbourne and studied an arts degree but geography and economics were my two majors and they were yeah I guess because for an interest in like environmental sustainability and like how the world works how economies work yeah. and I studied economics really to kind of know thy enemy to try and figure out how the how the bastards spoke but yeah around that time too I was really concerned about climate change and around the time that I was at uni there was lots more activism really starting to kick up and that was you know around the time that um, Hazelwood was being lambasted as the dirtiest power station in the world. I found myself grappling with these like apparently competing concerns about 
yeah, we climate change is an existential threat. We need to we need to stop releasing carbon in the atmosphere. But clearly, it's not just as simple as a bunch of greenies rocking up at Hazelwood and trying to shut the gates. I have a really clear memory of helping do a bit of preparation for and organise a meeting before the first big switch-off Hazelwood protest in 2009, which is for people who live in the valley probably remember it, and people engaged in climate might remember it too. There was um there was a big direct action protest planned, and you know 500 or so, probably more people concerned about climate change rallied out the front of Hazelwood Power Station to call for a phase out of burning coal because we need to do that. But it was a pretty it was a it was a pretty high profile media event that was characterised by kind of confrontations with police and a narrative that you know there was kind of these inner city greenies coming to close the gates and there was like you know coal workers here proud of coal and wanting to kick greenies heads in but i have a really clear memory of before that happened of being yeah doing a little bit of work helping prepare for this community meeting where it was trying to have a bit of a a deeper conversation about exactly what was going on Mm -hmm. so there was a few environmentalists presented about climate change and um, there was a bunch of people from the valley there speaking and some coal workers and some union reps from the mining energy union and others. Yeah, there were some pretty tense moments in the meeting, but, but one of the big takeaways was a kind of pretty clear sentiment and one particularly articulate coal worker saying, look, we, we get there's an issue here, we get the climate change, but you can't just come down here and tell us to shut things down when you can see this is, place has its economic challenges and... There's no other option on the table. You can't expect people just to give up their livelihood and stop supporting their family. We don't love coal. We, we just need to keep surviving. So if, if, if you're going to come here and tell us to shut things down, then at least make sure there's something else on the table. And, and I'll take a green job any day of the week if there's one there. And I think that sentiment stuck with me. And I'm spending a lot more time down here in the valley over the next few years. I decided to take on, like, I did an honours, bit of honours research, which was a way to get a scholarship to fund more engagement and organise more meetings and conversations between people to try and bridge that apparent but often false, like, jobs versus environment or, like, greenies versus co-workers or city versus country kind of divides. And I got involved with Earthworker around the same time. It was Earthworker spoke to me because it was positing really clear and holistic and what I find still pretty compelling actions that we can take to deal with these things and to show that these challenges of climate crisis and economic justice and democracy are actually really interconnected and we have to try and grapple with them all. Got more and more involved with Earthworker and in the last decade or so it's it's kind of big flagship project has been trying to set up a whole bunch of worker-run businesses that provide democratic dignified employment and do socially and environmentally useful work. And the first big example of that always been planned as here in Morwell, creating alternative employment for people who currently depend on fossil fuels to put bread on the table. I got more as I got more and more involved with Earthworker, I could see there was a clear need. Yeah, helping start put some practical examples of what an alternative future might look like. Earthworkers had a long focus out here because it's this is kind of a really the valley is a really critical place where this question of climate change kind of comes to ground, and what climate action means for different working communities on the ground this is a really important place for that kind of things have come around in a few different funny twists and circles 
uh, first thing I wanted to touch on is 2009. I don't remember that protest. No, um, I also had to look it up. I was like, I did not even. I think yeah. we were just very disengaged youth then. I was very drunk in 2009. Yeah. I just moved to the city and I was busting my ass working retail <laughs> all the time. So I was retail queen and drinking after work, I think. Not that I was totally cut off, but I think I was very cut off from my hometown. Yes, we were very much forging a new identity Exactly. Not looking back, got out of the place. Exactly. Which is always why I'm so like excited to find out someone like came here on purpose, right? At that time, (laughs) yeah. Um. So I wanted to touch on that something like that Wendy also said as well. This worker that he heard speaking at the rally didn't care whether they worked for fossil fuels or whether they worked for green energy. They just wanted a job, um. Which I think is a narrative like we're seeing a lot more now from the workers. I'm really excited by this idea of the false dichotomy. Like, do you know about Nuance November? No. (laughs) So it's like this movement, I think it's probably from Twitter. I could be wrong. Shout at me in the comments if I'm wrong. But basically it's just this idea of looking at like the, these ideas of these false dichotomies that we put into language in order to shape movements. And usually like Dan's saying, they are either nefarious or if by virtue, not by, or not by design nefarious, they are are intrinsically nefarious because they put a false sense that there is just like A or B, that's it, nothing else. And so I think that's why I'm interested in this like narrative of the like the worker who don't give a shit, they just want a job. I think that's true, but I also think there's nuance there. And yeah. I like, you know, it, it, it's such a simplistic narrative. And maybe this is a false or like a, it's, it's to do with the way we engage with media or, or what's easily consumable or something like that, the way we like reduce things down to like, you know, the narrative that works. And I think we're also in the media industry. And so we're looking at the people who can tell the story in the most engaging way, because that's what's going to be the, I guess the most interesting to listen to, but we're also coming up against this, the need to tell stories that are complicated and aren't going to necessarily fit well in an hour. So I think, I don't know, just him touching on all of those points that we've also thought about in terms of telling Morwell's story or the Valley story with nuance and dignity, it, it isn't always black and white of like the, the you know the the evil mind worker or whatever that yeah. we when we set out we thought maybe there'll be evil mind workers or something and now we're like oh god it's not that no it's not exactly that um, it's going back to a tale of oldest time good versus evil yes, like David and that's why we're Goliath. simplifying um, yeah. things down so much I think yeah. and uh, like I don't know what is the three story act or the five story act of um, Hazelwood. The epic of Gilgamesh <laughs> yeah. as told by Hazelwood. Yeah. yeah. So I think all of that really excites me about the way that he understands the things and how much he's seen. And I guess the fact that he kind of sees it from a union perspective, but also a worker perspective, but also has, because he was here historically, has some of the narrative that we haven't quite heard yet. And I think he kind of fills in a piece of the puzzle for me that I haven't really heard articulated in this way. So that's certainly what I yeah from that. Yeah, um, totally. And uh, I'm very interested in the worker perspective that Dan is offering here currently. Yes. Because I'm only, I can only ever be an outsider looking in on that yes. world. Again, <laughs> we don't even know what a factory is. Exactly. We're like, what? Factory? factory? Yeah. Right, totally. Yeah. The last sort of like introductory question that I did want to ask Dan and like um, had him touch on was just like that misconceptions you know, of the Valley question, um, which I think we kind of had quite different ideas from everybody and none of them have been quite what we've expected. I think we have different misconceptions about it than other people, but this is what Dan had to say. I'd been spending, like I'd been spending lots of time here in the Valley back and forth for many years before I started living here. 
and then I've lived here for seven, eight years now, have increasingly found myself like doing what valley people do, which is like defending the valley against this slander that it's a shithole. It's a shithole. <laughs> um, obviously, there's so much more to um, the valley than coal and there's so much more to the valley than like the legacy of, of poverty and from privatisation. But that's, that's, those, those things still dominate the, the, the narrative of the place, sadly. I guess when I first started coming here, I think that's, some, that's a perception I still see in, in, in people, which I had early on too, which is that uh, Morwell is a coal town or Tarelgan's a coal town. So everyone works in the coal power stations and everyone knows all about coal and everyone loves coal. <laughs> um, and perhaps that was more true back in the SEC days when the SEC did employ so much more, so many more people and supported the community in a much more holistic way. But certainly nowadays, like, you're almost in a minority if you've got a job at a power station. Yeah, I guess we're talking about narratives of the valley and that's one that I think still is still persistent. And I think people just aren't aware of the great diversity of or economic activity of, of stuff that happens here, the great diversity of people that live here. I mean, relative to other regional areas, the Trove Valley is quite a multicultural, it's got a long multicultural history. The great, like, creatives and artists and musicians that live in the valley, like, yeah, that's been a really wonderful thing to become, to, to experience and be a part of the, the music community here in the valley and, 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 and the art scene, which there's some really great creative stuff that happens here that, that, yeah, people aren't aware of and and right off when they dismiss the the valley as sort of a coal town or a poor town or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think Dan is bang on though. There are so many uh, talented musicians and talented artists um, that are popping off around the valley. And yeah, we are so much more than coal people. It's saying. like my favorite yeah. soundbite from everything um, that we've done. It's interesting that like, it does seem to take people either moving here or spending a, a vast amount of time here to kind of shift that perception. But I wonder, like, would that probably be the case anywhere? You move to Tokyo yeah. thinking you're going to have, like, a ramen girl experience and then it's, like, <laughs> not that at all. It's, like, a nuanced place with a whole bunch of yeah, stuff definitely. going on. So does feel like the valley is sort of for those... And, like, his point was that not everybody obviously works in the power station. The idea that you and I could be so disconnected while living here. Like, my dad actively worked in those power stations and I was disconnected till about, I don't know, 10 or 11. I could understand the conversations yeah. going on. But I didn't really... You just don't think about it, right? No. At all. Like, it's... You're you know, you're a kid, you're a kid. You're not working in the mines. Thank you. know. Thank yeah. God. And so, like, like it wasn't weird to me to have power stations. No, I think that's the thing. Visually. If you're around it the whole time, it really doesn't become different. And so the older you get, maybe then the more uh, distinct or whatever, mm-hmm. based on other people's responses to that. And that's where those misconceptions come back in. Um, I should also clarify, like when I was speaking with Dan, we were um, inside this like uh, boardroom or I guess it used to be an ex-board room, because the building isn't purpose-built for them. It was an old 70s factory. And so I'm sitting at this, like, kind of... It's like a wooden-panelled room. Giant table. <laughs> yeah, like a big table. But, um, yeah, kind of it's kind of 70s aesthetic. Uh, and he's... Uh, the other worker, Graham, was sitting at the table doing, like, factory... Again, I don't know what he was making. Some kind of thing. Graham, um, who will be speaking in just a second, showed us around the floor, and we kind of got to see, you know, like the like welding thing and there was this like suit that looked really like scary and gnarly and it was like for welding and like with the big yeah face the thing I, I thought it was like yeah. a, I don't know like a dead did you see skin. someone weld no I have didn't. you seen someone weld before only in movies okay <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I go on this tour Sorry. and then we come back and we're sitting at this um table while Graham's sort of like making this like 
so forgive me, Graham, but like metal thing. <laughs> like he's I'm like, thing. What, the reason I asked was because yep. I wanted to figure out if I could get what he was making. I, I, um, it, I think it must have been like a small component part electronic of electronic component thing. of yeah. the internal of the water service. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I reckon let's just go. Yes. 10 yeah, out of 10. Sure, that's sure. what it was. I sort of wanted to know, given that he obviously works in this place, what is it like for him working there? This is so cool. You were like a journalist out in the world. Oh, I had like one of those like hats on. Person. And then I had my foot in the door and I was yeah. like, tell me what it's like. No, nah, he was really nice. Yeah, cool. He gave me a sticker. <laughs> yeah, nice. My comrade here, Graham, who's one of the um, long starring i was going to say long suffering but i'm saying long <laughs> long starring um fellow um instigators of work here at the earthworker energy manufacturing co-op so graham please chime in if i say something you don't agree with no um yeah so we're sitting here now in the board slash lunch room of the earthworker energy manufacturing cooperative this is a, a worker-run factory that manufactures really high quality stainless steel solar hot water products. So we make premium stainless steel hot water storage tanks for solar hot water systems or heat pump hot water systems. Products that can help households reduce their energy use, reduce their carbon pollution. And we're aiming to try and build back some Australian manufacturing to make some of the solutions to the climate crisis and to people's economic hardships to make those solutions right here in the valley and make it to a high standard. We're sitting in one of the industrial states in Mall in a shed that's full of welding machinery and other bits and bobs which make these great, um, well, which help make these great products. Earthworker Energy Manufacturing Co-op strives to, yeah, to do all that, to make all those good things in a way that's democratic, where workers who do the work collectively and democratically own and run the business. We're, we're still pretty small and we're still pretty early in our kind of development. We've been operating here for about three years, selling and manufacturing product here for about three years. And at the moment, we're growing. So we're doing the dance of figuring out how we structure our cooperative, our, our operating business in a way that can welcome new people into a democratic structure that is really functional and where people can participate pretty equally in how we run the business together. We're still f- figuring all that out. My understanding of co-op was pretty limited, and so I really needed to ask Dan, what exactly is a co-op? And this is what he had to say. We're still a really small team. So at the moment, Graham, Graham and I have different strengths and skill sets. Graham's, Graham's a superstar, Mr. Fix-It, who can pretty much do everything out there on the factory floor. And I guess I do a bit more of the admin and sort of business management sales sort of stuff. So we kind of have different areas of work, but when we work well, we're communicating and deciding priorities for what needs to happen yeah we had a we had a few decisions to make about some recruitment and some other things and that was done pretty much via a consensus model where um we hammer out issues and we make some proposals and and ideally we we find something we all agree to so consensus decision making something I'm, i'm a big fan of and something that is a part of earthworker too as a backup to that if there are times when consensus can't be reached then yeah we go to a vote and and i guess yeah majority wins for that broader question of how to how how the hell does it work? There are like there are thousands of different worker cops all around the world, and we have taken some inspiration from and learnt from lots of different ones. And diff- every co-op kind of has a probably has a different story about how they um, how they run, how they operate. When you're a small co-op like we are, we can kind of afford to be pretty informal and flat in our structure. There are some big worker co-ops where there's 500 
people who collectively own that business together and run it democratically and, and they'll often um, delegate different levels of management or leadership or authority because it's pretty hard to have a yeah flat structure of 500 people. But the important principle in a worker co-op is that it's always one worker, one vote and where there is management, where there are you know bosses or people in positions of authority, it's the workers who hire the management, not the other way around. So worker co-ops are based on that principle where one worker, one vote, we all collectively decide the nature of our work. And while that might not be in every co-op, every day having a vote on every single decision, because that's just not practical, for bigger co-ops that can mean, yeah, electing the board or electing the bosses and having a say in that bigger picture stuff. Do you want to say, is it time I missed anything? No, pretty spot on. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> fucking love that mate yeah i love the idea of the workers electing the management yes that it, that just that's a such a simple shift in power totally. that is so important i yeah. think like having to yeah feel rather than having to feel like you have to kiss the boss's ass the boss has to kiss yours steph i'm gonna get you to tell me i've got a little graph here and i thought you would like because you're like a reader and like a person who performs if you would like to tell me the seven cooperative principles as copied from the website oh my god i love this so much so is that oh we're doing like a real like, podcast yeah yeah, yeah like a real yeah. thing okay i know you like to do this type of thing so i've got you can you just read out here so it's super clear for everybody this is like top seven principles that you never believe no actually it's just the top it's just the, the <laughs> seven cooperative principles is this clickbait it is a little bit <laughs> yes all right the cooperative principles one voluntary and open membership i like it Two, democratic member control. Mm -mm. Three, economic participation. Love that. Four, autonomy and independence. Sounds good to me. Five, education, training, and information. Six, cooperative among cooperatives. That sounds like a mistake. (laughs) Cooperation among cooperatives. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. And seven, concern for community. All right, I'm vibing. I'm vibing. That feels good. Beautiful. But because I'm like desperate to understand fully, and like I don't engage with stuff until I read it more. Can I read more? Yes, I have an an appendix that I found on the website, and these are like I think these kind of break it down into like the organizational and the personal. So, do you want to read these? I'd love to. The cooperative enterprise, the cooperative individual. So these are two columns, people. So the cooperative enterprise, people can join and leave. The cooperative individual. I can find a common interest with others if I am open to their needs and I behave in a way that enables them to cooperate with me. I feel like I'm in primary school. Like, that sounds hard. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it does. I feel like I'm, I'm doing a good job reading these. Yes. <laughs> Your voice will be heard because I have an equal say in what happens. I listen and I communicate openly and honestly. How traumatized am I when that sounds too good to be true? (laughs) But I think that is the experience of lots of people within the working world. Like this isn't what happens in a standard, uh, a standard workplace. Okay. The cooperative enterprise number three, you control the capital. I keep a close eye on what we are trying to do together and the decisions I make are guided by this. What about when I have a manic phase and I buy heaps of shit on the internet? That with our money, <laughs> that is you controlling the capital. Yeah. Well, look, we'll have to discuss that. We we'll have to discuss it. Just, can we have a consensus that I can buy shit on the internet? 
Well, only if I can too. Okay. <laughs> we'll that's how a, we have no money. In the budget. We'll in put a, a little, <laughs> an internet spending spree in the budget. And if anyone buys something from um, Kawhi plushies or Squishine, <laughs> they have to get something for the other person. We'll put person. that in the charter. Yeah, in the charter for sure. <laughs> um, together, you are autonomous. I help others so that they can help themselves and they help me in the same way. So that together, we are more in control of our future. That's isn't fucking that like, beautiful. But isn't that like literally against everything you're told in individualistic capitalism? Yeah. Society? Like society, you're just like, no, don't work together. Yeah. Don't there's only one pie, Josie, and I, I need to it's get as much right. pie as I, I can. I for that motherfucking pie. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Like, I just want to help people achieve and achieve But in the as current well. structure, you are punished. Yeah. Absolutely. You're punished. You can develop yourself. I'm interested to learn from those and others around me so that I can behave in a more cooperative way. I fucking love that. Can you imagine be encouraged to learn? Yeah. I want to be encouraged to learn instead of being encouraged to be like a, an anonymous cog in some system. More cog, more cog. (laughs) You can be more successful by cooperating with others who know how to cooperate. I look for opportunities to cooperate with others in new settings. And this is like, this is such a simple thing I want to bring up right now. But have you ever been to like a festival with a shared kitchen or anything like that? Or I've been somewhere? camping with a shared kitchen, but yeah. Yeah. So, well, uh, the first time I went to, I think it was like Confest or something like that a thousand years ago, they have like co-op kitchens there and there's like small amounts of food that anyone can use. You can bring stuff to contribute um, to the collection but you can use whatever you want and you just clean up after yourself and put it away. And my mind was blown that people actually cleaned up after themselves. Yes. There are some specific festivals where you're like, it's shocking when people behave. Right. Like do the thing that's not fucked. Yeah. And like, why should we be shocked by that? We shouldn't be shocked by that. (laughs) Like by and and large, but we're kind of taught that people we don't know are not going to do that. So we've got um, one more left. Which is, you can do something for your community, even as you keep succeeding. Wait, what does that mean? So that means that you can succeed and do something for your community. It doesn't have to, they're not mutually exclusive. <gasps> Success isn't reliant on you doing better than other people. All right. So it's, again, it's the antithetical thing to the climbing over everybody's yeah. corpses. And yeah. Climb up with them. Which is, isn't that the argument like there shouldn't be billionaires because in order to be one, you have to like shit, shit on, on so everyone many else. No one that's you can get there. rich, but like, do you have to be a billionaire about it? Like no. come the fuck on. Okay. So the second part of that one, which was, you can do something for your community, even as you keep succeeding is I am aware that I am a part of a larger system and I am committed to doing what I can to make it better. Which is what a beautiful. fundamental like psychological difference, though. I just want to. It is. I just want to put this on my wall. Those and are good read principles, it. right? Well, yeah. I'll, like I'll put the links in the show note. You can print it out. Yeah. But that's all part of like the core philosophy, I guess, and like you know, political. Who doesn't want to work like that? Like I, I don't know anyone who that wouldn't be appealing liberal to. Liberal voters. Okay. No yeah. offense. I'm gonna take a hard pivot now, and we're gonna get onto like the narrative of. The Hazelwood closure. Okay, awesome. So Dan was in Morwell uh, at that time, and um, so was Graham. Hazelwood obviously is the giant uh, power station. It was the first in the area to close down. It was sort of unceremoniously um, shut a lot sooner than anyone sort of had expected. And even though those conversations had been going for years and years and years, I think it's still kind of 
you know, shocked the town in a way where it was like, it felt very sudden and, you know, we weren't supported through it. Basically, Earthworker team sort of set up in Morwell knowing that the place was going to have this end, you know, they were obviously ear to the ground, knowing about the end of the sort of coal industry. But the precursor to that is, of course, like the mine fire. So this is sort of Dan's reflection on the mine fire and the direct psychological impact it had on the town that was already, like the town's obviously living in the shadow of like privatization. So this is his reflection on that and how, how we get to where we are now. Being here just briefly was horrible and, and hearing people talk about having to do that, having to move without going, our being able to go anywhere was appalling. And the lack of support was just mind blowing. And that entrenched this really already present, but this um, really deepened this, this mistrust of government. And that arguably is already there since privatization from when the power industry was privatised and sold off and people were kind of thrown on the scrap heap. People already had a distrust for government, but the mine fire really embedded that really strongly. In some ways, it, it added fuel to the fire of this kind of fear around economic change and, and conversations about coal and the future of the valley. It was a clear indictment on the way the power industry, the way the way coal industry was running. But at the same time, there was still lots of, there still is, and there still was, especially then, lots of fear around power stations closing down because of the economic impacts. And there's this sense that this this um, the climate wars meant that these discussions about climate change and renewable energy and coal was, were really fraught and heated. So I think in some ways the mine fire heated up that tension a lot more. But in other ways, I think it kind of cracked open opportunities to talk a bit more seriously about the future of the valley because here was this really clear, horrible, toxic example of some of the um, risks and dangers of the coal industry of the way that it's run in, in a ruthless for-profit paradigm anyway. So I think that the mine fire actually opened up space for, a, for more public conversation about futures beyond coal. Futures beyond coal. What could that be? Mm. Is it co-ops? It's probably co-ops. Cooperative renewable energy. Yeah. Yes, please. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be that. So we've got projects coming, right? Like we've yeah. got a wind farm. Couldn't we... Yeah, like, theoretically, <laughs> like if they're making something we? new, they could entirely yeah. make it with a cooperative model in mind. Yep. Um, that doesn't seem, it's harder, I think it's harder anyway, in my mind, to change a system, like you were saying before, to change it to be a new thing rather than create it right. in a new but way. But because these are going to be new anyway, yeah. we could try. And again, it's like, it's not great now. So why not at least try something new? Try something new. And yeah. maybe it'll be amazing. Like, maybe. maybe. Maybe it'll be just great. So... I don't know. It just feels like we have the impetus. We have the opportunity. I don't know why we don't have the desire. So we've talked a few times about the State Electricity Commission or the SEC, or as it's known, the uh, Slow, Easy, Comfortable uh, Corporation or whatever, uh, which is the State Electricity Commission, right? Um, We've spoken about that a little bit on this podcast. One thing I was really interested to find out from Dan was, is like, okay, so that doesn't seem that different to the co-op structure. So was the Valley's history with having an SEC uh, in place and it's still within living memory, like a lot of the workers will be the same. Was that sort of helpful in the movement towards co-ops down here or was it a hindrance? Like was the living memory of the SEC making his job easier or harder? And this is what he had to say about that. Yeah, the SEC, the State Electricity Commission of Victoria was a, was a big state government body that was charged with providing the state with electricity. Um, and it was responsible for developing all the Latrobe Valley's coal mines and power stations um, in order to provide power 
that was cheap and reliable for, especially for Melbourne and its growing manufacturing sector, but you know, for the whole state of Victoria. And it was run as a public service. It was run to provide an essential service for Victorians. Um, and in doing so provided really well paid, stable, lifelong careers and jobs for thousands of people, especially here in the Valley where lots of the activity was centered. Yeah, tens of thousands of people were, were, were trained up here through apprenticeship programs and then you know, ended up working all over the country with highly skilled qualifications from the SEC. And people, you know, from high school onwards during the SEC years um, had really um, stable, well-paid employment. And part of that was because there was a really strong union movement here, which, which worked really hard to make sure that workers were, were paid well and had good conditions. You know, if you talk to especially older people in the Valley, people often talk about um, the boom years, um, which lasted decades in the Valley when Moore was like a pumping urban centre with, you know, seven pubs and nightclubs and was the place people would come to from far and wide. People still talk about that with great pride. For various, I think, ideological reasons, from sort of late 80s through the early 90s, part of this broader trend that people call neoliberalism, like this kind of growing economic theory that started in the 70s and sort of spread across the world that really government shouldn't play a big role in the economy, that we should privatise things that, that kind of capitalism works best and it works best when it's private ownership and capitalists left to do what they want. That kind of, that led to some restructuring of the SEC and ultimately the, and the SEC was privatised. So that what was an essential service, when the SEC was in boom time, people often talk really fondly about um, all the different community clubs and societies and activities that the SEC supported and that were supported by workers in the SEC and their families. So, yeah, come privatisation, it was decided that what was an essential service should become a private for-profit business. And it was restructured and kind of um, slimmed up and sold off. And in the process, thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs were lost in the Valley in a very short space of time. And there was no real planning or consideration about the impact that would have. There was very little support for people who were long-term support people who were laid off or for families that were left without a breadwinner or whatever in that time. So the social repercussions and the economic repercussions were like horrific. And yeah, I didn't live through it and people have different memories of it, but the kind of stats are pretty clear that like the Valley, the Valley's reputation in the decades since for being kind of a region that has higher than average social disadvantage and, and economic disadvantage and entrenched intergenerational poverty, that's largely a result of that really disastrous privatisation of the power sector where jobs were lost in a huge number almost overnight without any planning or, or compensation or support. And the other impact was that, yeah, what was an essential service run to be an essential service became a profitable exercise that where the motive was not to provide electricity necessarily, but to make money. And that's a very different incentive. Hence, you know, people chopping up and selling off firefighting pipes in Hazelwood Mine instead of maintaining them. Yeah, the question about how it relates to co-ops. In some ways, people have said different things about this, and I think there's a bit of truth in all of them. Some people argue that the SEC, because it was this big government body which kind of had massive planning power and enormous scope and provided all these great, comfortable jobs for people, some people say that meant people didn't have to do a whole lot of work for themselves, didn't have to kind of, weren't very entrepreneurial. If that's, um, if that's a word. I'm not sure that's totally true, to be honest, but that's a narrative people, and that's certainly, that was, some people use that as a justification for privatisation. 
you know, people got it too easy. We need to, they need to learn how to work hard for themselves or whatever. So that's, that's one thing people say. Um, on the other hand, as I said before, you know, the, through the SEC years, there's lots of great examples of, of um, credit unions, of community organisations, of sporting clubs being really active and being really thriving parts of the community. Um, and in fact, not just Bank Australia, as it's now known, but the SEC credit union and other small credit unions which amalgamated into that one, um, that's not the only example of cooperatives in the valley. The, the mall co-op was a really long-running community-owned co-op, a retailer, a shop in mall that was communally owned and run and provided a place for people to get their daily needs for a long time in mall. And that sadly doesn't isn't here anymore. But there, there's, there's lots of examples of community cooperation and um, self-organising that go way back in the valley. So on one hand, you know, maybe, maybe the SEC or the slow, easy, comfortable, as some people used to criticise it, maybe that um, meant that people didn't have the spark to try and create stuff themselves as much as other places. But on the other hand, there's great examples of community organising suggest that, that that's always been present in the Valley and, and we'd like to think that trying to help rebuild new cooperatives in the Valley can, can tap into that, can, can give people a sense that you know we can participate in and shape our communities and economies in ways that we think they should be shaped again. I guess one challenge we've come up against in trying to recruit some new workers to the factory, especially kind of skilled tradespeople, is that since privatisation, and this is a broader trend in the kind of casualisation of work and what people you know call the gig economy, is that people are used to... Um, not necessarily working at one place for a long time, but like jumping from job to job or opportunity to opportunity. So we're, we're once, you know, lots of the maintenance teams and people that would maintain and fix up power stations and mine equipment, they were all full-time jobs by the SEC and things were maintained to a high standard. Now, you know, it's kind of little contractors who are waiting by the phone for a call up, maybe once every few months, get paid really well for a short period of time, but then they're kind of left in the lurch again. So people are used to that kind of, intermittent seasonal work as a manufacturing business that's still starting up we can't we can't compete we can't pay the same wages that a power station paying someone hundreds of dollars an hour can pay but we can offer people um, ongoing work and a chance to collect to, to share in and, and and own and run a co-op with others together but i guess i think when people are still in that kind of hand-to-mouth seasonal work mode it can be hard to see that opportunity perhaps and perhaps people you know we're all in a and the pandemic perhaps showed this highlighted it more we're, lots of us are in kind of precarious economic situations and it's hard to not jump at what seems like the best short-term opportunity whenever it comes up but i think that's one other dynamic that's that's perhaps at play in the valley is that yeah this this more contemporary paradigm of work and casualization makes it harder for people to or people aren't as used to really in committing to something longer term that's a lot it is i i had a few react from that so i'm glad he brought up the slow easy comfortable yes um because someone i was speaking to recently said that to me that um they got a job they did an apprenticeship through the sec mm -hmm. and um that it was known as slow easy comfortable everyone knocked off at six and you wouldn't do any work after that you'd take like your break to the second and I'm like, yeah, what's wrong with that? But people have this, like that, that goes against the 
we're hard workers, like we're um, like that ethos that people have taken on. And I was gonna ask if you'd asked about what the wage was at the co-op. Uh, yeah, so I think it is competitive. Basically, I saw actually they were advertising jobs just recently and I saw one job that was for the factory labor position, which was about $35 an hour. And then there was another job for a welder, I think, which is about $40 for probation and then 45 for when you like a full-time, full, full welder person. That sounds pretty amazing to me. Yeah, so it's definitely competitive. But knowing how much my dad earns on a shut, it's not that competitive. Yeah. And so I think him bringing up... I mean, I think you're, just to touch on the point that you made about the SEC, which is obviously the State Electricity Commission. And I also flagged that and uh, with my family to try and be like, hey, you know, what are your memories? Was this good? My mom also brought up the slow, so easy, easy comfortable. comfortable. But she also told me that the, so you know the PowerWorks thing that used to be the operational, I think, headquarters? Yeah. And that it was known as Bullshit Castle because that's where the orders came from. And I guess that's because the same thing where the workers... I don't know, felt entitled or were able to, um, because of the security of their jobs, mm-hmm. you know, feel like they could, they had a, I guess... They're empowered, empowered. to talk shit about yeah, the bosses. Yeah, about the bosses. Yeah. The, the number one thing that struck me was that we've been raised in a world with a gig economy and this sense that if you... I mean, the pandemic changed that you should take time off if you're sick. Like, it used to be like a badge of honour to yeah. go to work sick. That's a, You'd ex- be expected to. Yeah. And the idea that, like, that it's so foreign to us that somehow slow and easy life is bad. Yeah. I mean, I guess it comes down to like, what do you want out of life? What is the good life? Which is a much bigger philosophical question. It is, and it's different for everybody. Yeah, that's the thing. It's different for everyone. And I guess like by these things operating, at least it's just another option for people. The fact that the Valley has these opportunities and we actually have an opportunity here to try some of these things out. So why the fuck not? I think that yeah. seems like the real... Why not? Like, why not? Yeah. It's not good now. Why not try something else? The next thing we talk about is like the actual closure of Hazelwood. So this is what Dan had to say. Yeah, it's funny. I remember in the few years leading up to Hazelwood's closure, being kind of worried about it. On one hand, like we need all these power stations to close down pretty quick if we're going to have any, any hope of dealing with climate crisis. Obviously, it needs to happen in a careful, considered, measured way where people aren't left on the scrap heap, but it needs to happen soon. So even despite that, before Hazelwood closed, there wasn't you know, a whole lot of talk about, what, about how we could plan for that well. And so I was a bit worried about it. It's funny, actually. So Earthworker, Earthworker had been talking about these issues for a long time and had been calling on governments to, to take some pretty practical steps to help plan for a, a, what some people call a just transition, like a fair and, and well-planned transition away from fossil fuels to make sure people weren't thrown on the scrap heap. Um, we've been calling that for that for a long time and, we, and trying to build really practical examples of what that could look like. Places like this show people, yeah, th- there is something else that we can do. Here it is and why don't you get involved? You know, after, despite many years of campaigning and working hard, governments were still pretty hesitant to throw any money at it to fund stuff like that. So we were kind of left up to our own devices to try and fundraise and as part of that, one of the many efforts we did, a bunch of Earthworker members walked from Melbourne to Morwell as a kind of fundraising walk and to try and build the public profile of this conversation about it. Right, how do we how do we have a just transition? How do we plan for a future in the valley beyond coal? And, you know, we ended up raising, um, I don't know, 20 grand or something, I think, which in the scheme of things is pretty small, but it was big at the time. And it, we did, we were able to have lots of great conversations along the way through the towns we walked in and bring some media attention to this question of like, how do we plan for a transition in the valley? It was actually during that walk that the first new big news story about Hazelwood's possible closure broke. So it felt like quite remarkable timing 
it wasn't actually governments. It was a bunch of volunteers walking along back, back Gippsland roads trying to foster the conversation. And suddenly then there was headlines um, about Hazelwood possibly closing. And the announcement was then made a month or two after that for the actual closure. And the closure, it's, yeah, so, so obviously the story of Hazelwood's closure is a bit of a debacle because the private owners gave the community five months. Um, people, lots of people, despite there being various writing on various walls, lots of people were still caught off guard, guard by it. Lots of workers thought they, they had much longer up their sleeve. It was a really tough period and a really emotional one. Yeah, the, the day that Hazelwood closed, I remember being there at, at site and, yeah, there was those really moving images of... Um, well, people saying goodbye to a place, some who had worked there for decades and decades their whole career. But that bigger, that deeper kind of shared fear about, oh God, well, what's next? What does this mean if suddenly there's 1,500 less jobs in a town that's already got its challenges? So on top of all that fear and, and sadness, there's also, you know, that kind of cynical politicking and the kind of those false narratives that, you know, it, it was greenies who had callously shut down Hazelwood, which of course wasn't the case it was the bosses who shut it down because it wasn't making enough money it was I guess a fraught period in lots of ways it really highlighted I guess the failure of governments and industry to properly plan for for events like this it shouldn't have caught anyone off guard <laughs> Hazelwood was actually supposed to shut many years before that and it had been extended because they hadn't been the planning to build the, the replacement capacity all those fears and that emotion also provided fertile ground for like those more cynical and, and mis, uh, cynical arguments and misinformation to make conversations about the next step difficult on, in an ongoing way as well. It makes me really frustrated when I hear that, like, cause, like the writing was on the wall with Hazelwood, like Dan said, and they could have been moving towards renewable energy so much earlier than they have been. And we're still only getting approvals for the solar farms and the wind farms in the Latrobe Valley now. Yeah. And that's like such an arduous process yes. to get anything new happening. Yeah. Um, and so like this is this problem. How long has this problem been known? How long have we known about climate change? Oh my God. So long. Since like the 80s, right? right? Like I think they were like, recycle and save the world. Then. Yeah. Like, we did that whole ozone thing. Like it's not like this is new. From there, I... Like, he obviously lived through the closure of that, mm -hmm. and it brought about the importance of new ideas. Well, not even new ideas, but, like, the rollout of, you know... Change. ...concepts that are different. And I was really curious, then, what is the link between the importance of having co-ops and worker-led movements with the very real and present growing climate crisis? And this is what Dan had to say about the link between co-ops and the climate emergency. Well, I think if we're going to deal with the climate crisis, as you know, people like Naomi Klein say, we kind of have to change everything. <laughs> we can't. We it's going to take a pretty dramatic shift in the way that we meet our needs and the way we live together. And I think a big part of that for me is having a more democratic economy. Consistently, polling suggests the vast majority of Australians want serious action on climate change. Governments, at the behest of you know too few corporate interests, have have consistently stalled um, if we had a more democratic economy perhaps that would look different a more democratic economics where people have a say in how the work we do shapes the world and how our economies look in a more day-to-day -day sense instead of just rocking up to vote once every three years i think that's that's an important um, part of the puzzle of how um, have a more sustainable economy because people choose given the choice choose a more sustainable economy but i think this bigger question of how 
of what a future economy looks like, I think for it to be sustainable and more desirable in the long term, then it, I think it has to be a more equal and more democratic one. So for, for, for us, for me, the cooperative model is one example of how we can organise the way we meet our needs in a, in a fair and more democratic way. If we're going to have a just transition away from coal, if we're going to phase out fossil fuels, if we're going to deal with the climate change, it's going to take some big changes the way we do things rather than just trying to swap one capitalist coal job for, I don't know, one in electric cars where we're under the same kind of structure of a fat cat boss sucking everyone dry. To me, that's not, you know, we've got to, we've got to do more than that. And if we're going to have the big change, why not, why not actually make a big change and, and, and use this as an opportunity to really transform the world into a way that is better for everyone? So how to try and summarise that? <laughs> well, are you hopeful we can get there within the time that it fears we have left, which is like six years or something? <laughs> yeah, if I wasn't hopeful, then I don't think I'd keep going. And we've found here through trying to build currently a small part of the puzzle, people are really excited about it. People eat it up. People, we're not keeping up with inquiries from people who want to support the project by you know buying a hot water service from a co-op or you know people still volunteer a lot of time and donate lots of money to support this the broader earthworker project that's trying to set up this whole network of co-ops i think there's a real hunger there's a real interest in reimagining how the world can be and playing some part in bringing that world to fruition um so i get i'm, I'm hopeful about that i think well in some ways especially through the pandemic people have had really tough times and have, you know, perhaps had to focus on just getting by in some ways. I think it's also highlighted that the world as it is at the moment is far from what we need or deserve. And so it's, it's awakening in a, a lot more interest and energy in people to try and find or build other ways of doing things. So I'm, I'm hopeful. It doesn't mean I'm optimistic. <laughs> oh, no. <You're> different. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say it was all fine. <laughs> The world that we have at the moment is far from what we need and deserve. Oh my god! Isn't I just need Papa so... Dan to tell me that everything like we deserve oh, better. Yeah, we do humans. deserve better, and um, I'm glad that Dan's hopeful. <laughs> yeah. There, do you ever just feel so fucking grateful that there are people that aren't me or you that are like way smart who are figuring this shit? Yeah, out? absolutely. I feel very grateful all the time. And I guess I'm hopeful too. And that's why I would bother to do anything that isn't like take drugs and eat food and sit around in my own shit, I guess. like That's a form of optimism. Yeah. It's going to be a new day. I mean, sometimes my climate anxiety makes me mm. feel like, like, th- like he's saying, like we, this mm. is not, gonna happen unless we make these big changes and like either i am totally misunderstanding the situation or everybody should be really fucking panicked and angry and that just feels immensely frustrating and i guess i think i want to be hopeful or maybe i'm hopeful but also not necessarily optimistic kind of like he's saying but I, i guess i i oscillate between distress and then genuine like we can do this yeah and it's not a static thing by any means so i guess knowing that there's a tangible way that at least in this you know, one specific factory and that, you know, they're rolling out. I mean, that's the thing yeah. I should also note that the Earthworker Co-op are setting up additional 
worker run co-ops in other areas and stuff so they've got you know it's growing it's not like you're saying people are excited and you know when we talk about this and the people that I was telling this episode about they're like that's so cool and it is it's so cool but we need that happening on like a fucking huge mass scale scale and yeah. now I think that's yeah. what freaks me out like this has to be like Same. yesterday I that's what is stressing me so much like remember when the arctic shelf started melting yes. you know like if this ar- arctic and now shelf it's like, melts so melting where is it <laughs> like it's, and yeah and these things are really stressful and I think that a, a lot of the time I'm like scared into inaction because yeah. I'm like it's too late everything's fucked yep. and like even like I make personal choices that I feel like are better f- for the world or whatever like trying to reduce my plastic consumption and not eating meat and stuff like that um which is all really personal and then some days I'm like why the fuck am I even bothering because nothing that I and do on this small scale oil into yeah <laughs> it doesn't it, it's not gonna help like we need systemic change and we did it fucking yesterday like yeah, yeah. And so I think that, yeah, it, it's really great to be speaking with Dan and learning about the Earthworker Energy Corp because it's another, like, group of people that are doing the fucking thing. They're doing They're doing it, yeah. the thing that needs to change. They're making the change happen. And that makes that makes me hopeful and that totally. makes me grateful. I mean, I like to be spoon-fed my um, sugar to make sure that I feel okay so that I can function. So after all of that, I was like, um, tell me how we can be hopeful. And this is what he had to tell oh, us about awesome. hope, the idea of hope. There's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic. But Graham and I actually were just talking about this before you arrived. You know, the kind of doom narrative about Hazelwood's closure spelling the end of the valley hasn't really come to fruition. The Latrobe Valley Authority, which was a state government body, which is still here, um, which is has, its job is, is to try and help revitalise the valley and initially just respond to and support people in the wake of Hazelwood's closure. I think that's that's playing a really important role. There's There's actually not just... This little cooperative and business, which is growing and, and looking to employ more people and put more product out, there's actually a whole bunch of other stuff happening around the valley too. It is like the stats are that there have been more jobs created in the valley since Hazelwood closed than there were lost in Hazelwood's closure. Not that our only measure for any success should be jobs, but <laughs> more holistically about that. But yeah, there's you know there's lots there's actually lots happening. Yeah, I'm excited about lots of the kind of creative cultural stuff that's happening in the valley too. I mean, there's people, there's people like you doing this podcast. There's, we've got a podcast now. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's great artists around who are doing some really exciting stuff. Pollyanna's studio yeah. and mall is a really great little hub of, of activity, which is really exciting. There's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, but if you look around too, that there's plenty of reasons to be hopeful that not only can we do things differently, we kind of already are. We just need to support and nourish and grow those better ways of doing things. All right, so this is us from the future. Hello, past us. Yeah, I don't want to like break the fourth wall or nothing, but actually the way we do this podcast is we send the episodes to the subjects and they get to have like a little look and just be like, make sure we haven't said anything egregiously wrong. Um, And the reason I wanted to make a little cut in here is because Dan gave us like incredible notes, but this one statement I just thought I just wanted to read in full because I think it really encapsulates what us as like shitheads couldn't quite summarize. It's very beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice. Thanks for that, Dan. Yeah. So this is just on hope. I would say this is like Dan Musil on hope. Um, I won't try and do his voice. It's just not possible. I'll read it. This is from Dan. So just pretend I'm Dan. Okay. So I close my eyes. Okay. Pretend I'm Dan. I'd love to convey that part of the reason that I think Earthworker is hopeful and important is not just that we're demonstrating practical, tangible alternatives, but that we're working to make sure these alternatives are part of a larger systemic approach to economic and social change. 
This includes building a large interconnected network of co-ops, connecting them with larger social movements, worker capital, and international solidarity, in inverted commas, like by working to support cooperation with other or new existing cooperatives and movements around the world. He does believe that we touched on this in the conversation, but he worries that we didn't convey on it properly, which is totally my bad. So I just wanted to put that statement out there. What a beautiful statement. Yeah. And I think, yeah. yeah, there are other cooperatives, as Dan mentioned in that. And yeah. that's so cool that these things are happening totally. everywhere. And me, I feel like as a nice bookend, we did talk about interconnectedness at the top. And so good luck, trust Dan to bring it all back to being connected. Yeah. Anyway, I'll throw back to past us. <laughs> are, you waving, are you waving at us in the past? I was waving at us in the past. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was like, where are words? I'll just wave. Goodbye. Goodbye. All right, back to us in the past. I just want to um nom nom nourish. Yeah. That always feels like so um permission to like do right by yourself yeah. type of thing i'm like oh why do i need someone no, to tell me <laughs> to like put moisturizer on or something yeah. yeah isn't that a beautiful sentiment like just hearing that after like i think my anxiety started to peak and i was like oh god there's so much to be done same uh, and then to just think about like the, the doom the doom narrative it's like mm-hmm. so true like i think that's what we grew up in the shadow of this doom narrative yeah. that everything's fucked basically yeah and that's why i think we had this palpable shift when we came back because it was, we're still here. And if anything, in the absence of that thing, new things. And it's getting, it does feel like it's getting better and people are more involved and yeah, I don't know, change is happening. Like it's not even a coming, it's happening. Um, I want to know, Steph, how would you measure, because he was talking about that you shouldn't mm. necessarily measure success in jobs. And I think that's a great stat that more jobs have been created since Hazelwood closed than um, that were lost. But how would you think we should measure success? I don't know how you can do this, but I think we should measure it through happiness and satisfaction. Don't they do that? There's like a happiness index. Yeah. So that I've heard about that too, but I think, yeah, if people are feeling satisfied and connected to their community and they feel like they're doing work that, like... Meaningful. Yeah, like, meaningful work. And I don't even mean, like, working for money or physical labor, but they're just... that They're contributing and they feel like they're getting what they need and giving what they can. I think that's how I would measure the success. And I'd measure it by their not... You know, there being common areas around the Latrobe Valley where people are there... Um, doing stuff together, like totally, where you don't have to pay money specifically to be involved. Okay, um, new idea. Mm-hmm. We get a minister for happiness, <laughs> the cabinet of happiness. Oh my god! And the new KPIs for the government, like yes, GDP and blah blah blah, but also happiness, happiness yeah. index. Like that. Yes. Sure, like, well, look, I will, I'll Google look the name of the that happiness in- index. index. Yeah. But like, imagine if we made that like a key country priority, and that would involve like fixing mental health and all those sorts of like yeah. typical things, but also what makes a good life like yes. it feels like that used to be a question that philosophers like ruminate what's the word ruminated Rum- ruminated ruminated whatever i'm not a philosopher <laughs> on like a thousand years ago and mm. we've lost sight of big vision of like what does it mean yeah. to have a good life when he talks about the sec stuck in the hustle. <laughs> totally when he talks about the sec i think one thing that strikes me is that there's a vision of what a life is like it's going to work coming like getting paid the the promise of like you get the pension and that you're going to be taken care of there's a life that's promised and I don't think that that's going to fit everyone there's no way right so that's not always the case but doesn't it feel like we lack a vision of what is a good Australian life it's certainly not home home ownership anymore it's not necessarily sticking in one job anymore Mm -hmm. for Australians but in the absence of any of those old definitions, what is a good life mm-hmm. for us now? I think, and I think the reason that so many of us in these younger generations feel such a tumultuous relationship with this country and the state is because 
The promises of the past can no longer be fulfilled and we're living in the evidence of that. But there's no new thing. And I don't know what I'm supposed to want or hope for. And that feels really scary. It is. My face like actively yeah. scrunched <laughs> and, and I felt a little sick in the gut. Yeah. Um, but don't you think it's like we yeah. don't have that promise? And then, you know, even our parents or parents' the generation get to, dream. Yeah. <laughs> even if you're in opposition or rebel against it, there at least is a tangible thing that is there for you to be in opposition to. I don't think we even have that. I think we've just kind of like, yeah. feels like we're just living in the end times as the playing the violin as the Titanic fucking sinks. And that's a little distressing. It is. It's really distressing. <laughs> it's really distressing. And like when I'm over the pandemic, I've had like issues with my mental health, like everyone, like most people. And what got me through was gardening and seeing bugs come into my <laughs> garden that weren't there before because I was like creating this little micro universe that was better and different. Yeah. And there was life and stuff happening. And that was like, pretty good so you're saying we need bugs to come into the whole of australia we need to invite like make an environment where giant super bugs take yeah, over and fix bugs. everything that's exactly that's what it. you're saying i like that so i think we know that earthworker co-op is making a difference and it's happening in mall and that's something to cling to so here is where you can find out more about them if you people are interested in the broader earthworker project which is setting up this big network of worker cults and trying to transform our our world you can look up earthworkercooperative.com.au. We'll actually have a new website soon, which is just earthworker.coop.coop. If you want to know, if people want to know more about this factory and the great solar and heat pump hot water products that we make here, that are made by champs like Graham and, and myself and others, go to www.earthworkerenergy. That's earthworkerenergy.coop, and we can organise a quote for great made in Morwell. Hot water system. I love that made in Morwell. Is that like a stamp that exists? We use it all the time. We haven't got a stamp yet. We should make a Someone stamp. Someone needs to register that. Yeah, we should. <laughs> Hashtag made in Morwell. Thanks again to our guest, Dan Newsell, for being so generous with your time. You can find our resources in the show notes for this episode. The music for Coalface by Anonymous420 and Loyalty Freak Music. This series is written, edited, and produced by Josie Hess and Stephanie Sabrinskis. If you like what you heard, find us on Instagram at ColdfacePod or send us an email to ColdfacePodcast at gmail.com. Look out for the next episode of Coalface.